Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, Ukrainian President Zelensky made an impassioned plea to Congress for more help, including a no-fly zone. In response, the U.S. will provide $800 million in new military aid to Ukraine, totaling over $1 billion so far, to help them fight back against the Russian invasion. For more on all this, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. I think it was meant to really tug at the heartstrings of not only President Biden and U.S. lawmakers, but also the American people watching this. Look, I think Zelensky has really captured the hearts of a lot of not only Americans, but also Westerners. He is an extremely popular figure right now in the West, uh, especially how we've seen him very much step up in this fight against Vladimir Putin and Russia. But in that video, I thought it was remarkable that, first of all, he showed he showed the video um, really drawing a contrast the before and after, it, you know, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what the civilians have gone through. But he also really tried to relate to Americans talking about the attacks on Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and essentially saying, imagine those attacks happening every day for three weeks. Right. And that's essentially what he has said, is, you know, Ukraine is going through. And that's what we're seeing, really, Ukraine going through. And I think Zelensky understands that Biden and Western leaders are in a very difficult position. Um, and he's also obviously in a difficult position right now, yeah. Westerners or Western leaders don't want to take that step of implementing a no-fly zone because they don't want tensions and violence really to escalate in the region. They're afraid that this is going to lead to an all-out war. Right. However, it's interesting, Volodymyr Zelensky is appearing in an interview Wednesday evening on NBC Nightly News, and he told, you know, anchor Lester Holt that he believes that World War III may have already started. So we might be yeah. really coming into a new normal of a conflict zone really in Ukraine and maybe even Eastern Europe. Yeah, Zelensky actually said some interesting stuff to President Biden himself saying, be the leader of the world. And that means bringing peace, uh, you know, be the leader of peace and all this kind of empowering Biden, really, at a time when President Biden has polls have been sagging. You know, he sometimes looks weak on certain issues, according to polls and whatnot, really empowering Biden to step up on that. So that was kind of an interesting thing, too. And President Biden, a few hours later, responded, you know, still no real option of a no-fly zone right now, because to your point, Zelensky said we might already be in World War III, but that's the big concern. We don't want to be pulled into a larger conflict, and enforcing a no-fly zone could do that. But what President Biden did say is that we're going to provide them more military aid, more money, $800 million in new military aid, over a billion dollars so far. Yeah, and I think that's what you are going to see, you know, not only the U.S., but other Western nations continue to do to really ramp up that military aid and military spending for Ukraine. Look, you know, even though the West is not moving in the direction of implementing a no-fly zone, I think everyone is very aware 
that this is hitting pretty close to NATO territory. In fact, I believe it was on Monday or Tuesday, Russia shelled an area that was probably, or Russian rockets landed in an area that was probably 12 miles or so from the Polish border. And Poland is obviously a part of NATO. And we know that the NATO charter essentially states an attack on one NATO member country is an attack on all NATO member countries. So they're very much trying to thread a needle as to how to de-escalate the situation, how to control Russia, you know, try to get them to de-escalate. But it's definitely a difficult position they find themselves in. The new military equipment will be sending over their anti-aircraft systems like Stinger missiles, Javelin anti-armor weapons. 20 million rounds of ammo, armed drones, grenade launchers, you know, really a lot of the stuff that, that, that they'll need to just push back on the forces. The Ukrainian military has been doing an amazing job. Everybody's pulling together and holding back as much as they can. But, you know, it's it just kind of this, as you mentioned, threading that needle, giving them as much support as we can without Russia being angry at that and causing a wider conflict and then just, you know, not engaging in direct fighting. There was an interesting thing uh, from a Pew Research Center poll. 35% of Americans favor some type of military action, even if it risks nuclear conflict. But, you know, the flip side, 62% said they oppose taking some of these steps. So while it is all very emotional and everything, I think everybody's well aware of the risks we face. Yeah. And I think there's also this history we have to take into account of Americans in foreign conflicts. You know, we just last year wrapped up American troop presence in Afghanistan after nearly 20 years. And we know that a few years before that, we wrapped up American troop presence in Iraq. And I think there is a real sense of fatigue right now that Americans feel when it comes to getting involved in foreign conflicts. We are also facing, you know, a lot of issues at home and a lot of the issues we face are also being faced by a lot of these Western countries as well as countries around the world in general, the coronavirus pandemic, inflation, rising energy prices. And I think there's a question as to if we were to put boots on the ground or become involved militarily with our own military personnel, what that would do to impact people living in their home countries. So it's a very difficult position, but I think it is remarkable really to see, you know, even though Americans polling shows they're not in favor of plurality or a majority aren't in favor of getting involved in a military sense, they are in very much in favor of sanctioning Russia and very much putting pressure on Russia. And that's where you see the unity in all of this. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In order to keep ahead of new variants and COVID surges, the CDC wants to monitor everyone's poop, but all states are not on board. During the pandemic, state and local health officials were able to detect COVID in their communities before residents develop symptoms, and the CDC wants to expand those programs, but states would need a widespread buy-in for this to be successful, and many logistical challenges remain. For more on the plan to monitor the nation's sewage, we'll speak to Catherine Foley, healthcare reporter at Politico. Our poop does kind of tell everything about us. Everything that is like goes through our GI tract will, you know, eventually leave it. So you can pick up little bits and pieces of not just SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, but I mean, eventually you could pick up maybe viruses like the flu, gastrointestinal viruses, or even things like opioid use to see where you might be seeing an uptick in drug use or anything like that. So that's not what the CDC is talking about right now. Right now, they're just trying to get states to start surveying all of their wastewater treatment plants to see if they can find 
evidence of any kind of new variant of COVID-19 or anything in their wastewater sheds. And the great thing about that is that, like, unlike people who might take at-home tests when they're feeling ill or maybe people who have asymptomatic COVID cases is, you know, everything is right there in the poop. So it's like one giant pooled sample that really can't hide anything, which is great. The problem is, you know, our sewage systems all over the country, A, they don't capture everybody. They capture about 80% of the country. Some people still have septic lines. And B, they're built really differently depending on where they are. You know, sewage was initially built as sanitation services because the whole idea was that, you know, we need to keep our drinking water away from our waste to stop getting sick. So, There's no good uniform way to say definitively how we want to sample these wastewater treatment plants. And as a result, you have a lot of these different treatment plants across the country that have gotten very used to taking care of sanitation in the way that makes sense for their community. So it's very difficult for CDC to come in and say, "Okay, this is exactly the standard. This is how you're going to take the measurements. This is how often you're going to do it. Because right now, CDC doesn't do anything with wastewater treatment plants. That's actually all, they're all regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. So CDC, a lot of localities have been doing this wastewater monitoring over the pandemic, as you've said, and it's worked on a really great, it's worked in a really great way at the local level, you know, especially at universities or correctional facilities. Researchers and public health officials have been able to predict or see, okay, we're seeing an increase in the amount of SARS-CoV-2 virus in this wastewater. We should isolate folks. We should test folks and make sure that they're isolating. So, you know, we hopefully don't have this virus spreading to a ton of people before they all get sick. And that's worked really well. So CDC wants this to happen on a national level and getting states to individually buy in and and volunteer for this process has been really hard. The CDC, I mean, they did launch already the national wastewater surveillance system, as I mentioned, but there's only a handful of states that are participating and even those aren't sending in a lot of the data that they need. A lot of this does come down to money, creating a new system, getting the people to manage and manage it effectively is kind of the longer term problem. Yes, that's exactly right. And so, like I said earlier, CDC doesn't really have any authority over wastewater systems. So all they're doing is asking states to participate and they can offer them carrots to do so. So one thing the agency did was partner up with a third party contract lab and say, okay, we'll offer you totally free testing. All you have to do is just let this lab come in, take samples from your wastewater unit twice a week or every few days or every other week, and they'll turn around the lab results. You don't have to do anything. But because wastewater systems are already so regulated, they're a little bit, you know, understandably anxious about getting any kind of external involvement in. And sometimes these facilities are so far away from like FedEx shipping plants because that's what you have to do. You have to ship the poop samples to a big lab somewhere to analyze them. (laughs) Sometimes they're so far away, it's really difficult to do it in that turnaround time. The other thing that CDC has been doing is there are these grants that states can apply for. And CDC has some of these grants earmarked specifically for developing wastewater monitoring systems. But you don't have to apply for a grant. You can, but states might say, you know what, we actually, this isn't something that would serve our population. So we're not going to do that. We're actually going to apply for different grants and focus on different public health measures. Yeah. For the states that said flat out, no, there's North Dakota and Wyoming, maybe a few more. One of them, they had concerns about wastewater data being federally reported. So kind of like a privacy concern, I guess you could say. But but really, what is their uh, thing for just opting out completely? There could be some genuine privacy concerns, right? I mean, scientists can know a lot about people 
especially if you're in a rural area and you're surveying from a wastewater treatment plant that doesn't serve a lot of households, right? But there could also be other factors at play, you know, in public health. If you know about a problem, you have to do something about it. So a lot of people that my colleague Megan Messerly and I spoke with for this story were saying that in some areas, you know, maybe public health officials don't want to have a wastewater monitoring system up and running because then they would have to acknowledge that perhaps they are not as free of COVID as they thought they were. And that, and that might be tricky because you can't, I mean, it's like getting a test for anything. You can't get a test and say, oh, never mind, I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah, definitely. So that could be what's at play there. Although it's hard to, the answers we typically got were, we're not sure if this would serve our communities at this time. Yeah. It is a tough situation, but you need some widespread buy-in for something like this to really be effective. So we'll keep an eye out and see what happens. Catherine Foley, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. This week, the Secret Service also released a new report on the growing terrorism threat of incels. These are men that call themselves involuntary celibates or anti-feminists. The report looked in incidents of violence linked to this type of extremism, including a series of red flags before a man opened fire inside hot yoga Tallahassee, killing two and injuring four in 2018. For more on the findings in the report, we'll speak to Nicole Skanga, Homeland Security reporter at CBS News. Since 2014, attacks inspired by the incel movement, which is sometimes called the anti-feminist movement, and spanning the U.S. and Canada have actually left dozens dead. And what the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment did was, as you mentioned, it took this deep dive into a series of red flags, warning signs predating a shooting at a yoga studio in Tallahassee, Florida, to figure out how can interventions save lives in the future. Now, NTAC within Secret Service, you might hear Secret Service and think, oh, they're in charge of protecting presidents past and current, but it actually has a sort of research institute within it, the National Threat Assessment Center, and they routinely publish research based on the assessment of the current threat environment. And so in this 26-page report, they basically found that early intervention and behavioral threat assessments could be the difference between life and death for women who are increasingly targeted by this growing ideology. And, you know, the report concluded that while there's no one profile of an individual who plans or executes an attack of targeted violence, investigators really have to consider potential targets when they're trying to put a stop to these attacks. Suspects routinely explore multiple targets during their planning process before making their final selection. And so in the case of this 40-year-old gunman, Scott Paul Bierley, there were countless warning signs. The man who opened fire on hot yoga Tallahassee, killing two women, injuring four before he himself committed suicide. He'd previously been fired from multiple teaching jobs. He'd been banished from bars, apartment buildings. He even once authored a 70,000-word revenge fantasy about a boy-turned-serial killer. And so there was a lot there there. So what NTAC did is it looked at this specific incident, but it also tried to extrapolate on, you know, the incel movement writ large and what can be done to prevent attacks like this from happening in the future. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of obviously looking into these red flags and things like that, it makes sense after a, a tragedy happens. These manifestos, these, uh, as you mentioned, his 70,000 word revenge fantasy story about a serial killer. These things really point to, wow, the, you know, he's thinking in that way. That's his frame of mind. 
And you mentioned 2014. I, I, you know, I think that's one of the cases I remember most. That was in uh, Isla Vista. This was a 22-year-old Elliot Roger who killed six people and injured 14 others. You know, he made a video. I think he went like uh, live on social media right before he did it. And same thing. A lot of the stuff talking about how he wasn't able to find a girlfriend. Uh, you know, the the Chad and the Stacys. There's so much a uh, jargon associated with this yeah. incel movement that was very interesting. And and at that time, it's like wow. How could a guy do something like that? And as you mentioned, since then, we've seen other cases of, of similar type things. And not only have we seen other cases of similar calls to violence, we've also seen very specific references to the Isla Vista killings that occurred in massacres after that. So, for instance, in 2018, you might recall there was a van attack in Toronto. It left 10 people dead, 16 injured. It was the deadliest incident linked to the incel movement that we know of. And witnesses saw a 28-year-old plow into pedestrians. He targeted individuals that were 22 to 94 years old. Minutes after posting on Facebook that the incel rebellion has begun. And the attacker actually had a history of praising the suspect, the shooter in the Isla Vista killings, Elliot Roger, online. And so oftentimes we do see individuals who are called to violence seeking inspiration from one another. And that's part of the reason why we have to be careful about how we talk about this movement, but also why it is so dangerous. It lives online. That means that it is more challenging oftentimes for law enforcement to be able to connect the dots here, which is why, you know, in its report, the Secret Service talks a lot about these behavioral threat assessments. And they're just fancy words for basically relying on the public to bring to light some concerning interactions with individuals, yeah impossible behavior that is deemed suspect so that they can prevent things from really escalating to this level of violence. Right. It's obviously just really tough to know what's going on in someone's head, but when they're manifesting some of this and people can notice it and to the point of these reports, right now, you know what the red flags are. You got to start spreading the word. You got to start telling people. In the first example, we were talking about the hot yoga Tallahassee situation. The man said, if I can't find one decent female to live with, I will find many indecent females to die with. You know, right there, that that sounds like a call for violence. And so these are the those red flags that you got to keep aware of. And, you know, we mentioned the manifesto that uh, that particular shooter had created. But, you know, again, he had this really long, deranged history. His roommates called him Ted Bundy, a notorious serial killer. You know, he was referred to as quote unquote Nazi on social media. His parents, you know, reported to law enforcement later as sleeping with their door locked, right? And had already brought their son's troubling behavior to the attention of law enforcement prior to this attack. So even in this case, when there were opportunities to sort of intervene, you know, we are left wondering, why did we let it get here, right? And so now, you know, I think Secret Service is sort of redoubling its efforts to talk more about the success program since, for example, North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Pinellas County, Florida, have created these behavioral threat assessment programs that are designed to detect and report early signs of potentially dangerous situations to prevent violence. But they're also found on college campuses. They're also found oftentimes even within high schools, community centers, you know, at the state level. And so even just having an awareness that these programs exist in certain communities is so important. So we can bring, if you see something, say something kind of to the next level here. Nicole Skanga, Homeland Security Reporter at CBS News. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.